0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. I'm really excited today. These are my first documentary filmmakers. So I've had filmmakers on, animators, Brandon Oldenburg is here. Um, So I'm super excited to have these guys. It was actually a team of four, but two of them are representing for the whole team today. And I'm really excited to have them. So Kevin Grazioli, like Ravioli. I was close. And Andrew has a little bit easier name, Andrew Quinn. So thank you guys so much for joining us today. And thank you guys for over in the chat. Feel free to tell us where you're coming in from. And I'm Diane Gibbs. If I didn't say that, I can't ever remember. So we're going to just get jump right in and dig in. They have made a movie about letterpress. And I think most designers kind of love letterpress. Um, if you love letterpress over in the chat, let us know. Um, what you think, and if you're interested or you're just, you didn't know too much, but now you want to know more. So, because I think the the film's actually doing some really cool things It's going around. So, Andrew, can you kind of give us an idea, tell us about the background for the movie and where the idea to make a movie about letterpress printing began?
1: Sure, yeah. So, um, I'm Andrew Quinn. I'm one of the co-founders of Bayonet Media. We're a production company in Indianapolis. Uh, we formed to kind of um, try and help our employees and ourselves make a living while being creatively fulfilled. We do a lot of client work, um, but we were le- looking to make a feature length documentary. We saw a lot of stuff that um, was on Netflix, places like that, streaming services that we felt like, well, that was pretty good, didn't look that great. We feel like our stuff is like a contend with that. Um, so we started looking, kind of keeping our eyes peeled for some kind of subject that would work as a feature-length documentary. Uh, and then my co-founder, Joe, uh, Joe Vela, his sister is friends with Aaron Beckloff, who is a um, professor at the University of Miami in Ohio, uh, where she teaches letterpress, and she's like one of the new, kind of new people's, people to letterpress. She did an internship at Hat Show Print, um, and was like, quickly accepted into the community, the letterpress community uh, here in the Midwest that kind of stretches out, like out to the coasts even. Um, And she was doing a lot of learning with these elderly elderly guys, um, teaching them in, in their basements, their garages, that kind of thing. And she realized, well, these guys have a lot of information, a lot of it that's not like published in books or captured in any way. So she started recording audio interviews with these guys but felt like um, it had such a strong legacy that it needed to be recorded in a a better, maybe more professional way. So her sister, uh, or Joe's sister, connected us with her. She came in and kind of told us a little bit about it, and then we were kind of instantly hooked. We didn't know a lot about letterpress at the time. We'd done a little short uh, about a printer here in Indianapolis, Um, but... It was just like this natural, like, of course, we're, we're looking for a subject matter. You really seem to know what you're talking about and would be a great kind of liaison to get us into the community. Uh, and we started from
0: there. So you're going, you're always looking for, you know, stuff or it's something that you were specifically at this time. So it was just serendipity that it happened.
1: Yeah, so we had all, all three of us had made some documentaries for, Kevin, Joe, and I had made some documentaries for PBS while we were still in school. Um, so we are just as filmmakers or observers, I guess, uh, documentary filmmakers are definitely like observer, observant type people. Um, you're always kind of looking for something. Could we turn that into a video? Um, we don't really, we're very visual people, not so much like written. So we hadn't written any like short films we've done some music videos but we're looking always on the looking lookout for subject matter yeah. um and when you see letterpress machinery it's pretty obvious that like this equipment would look good on camera it moves it looks different it's it's uh i don't know like it's almost foreign you know to, mm-hmm. to people today to see all this mechanical stuff um, in action, so we knew that, like, you know, you could point a camera at that, it would look good, but you also need some substance to tell a story. Right. And so, as we started to meet some of these um, older guys here in town in Indianapolis that had big collections of this stuff, it was becoming apparent, well, there's a story here, there's people that we could focus on,
0: right? All right, so. Kevin, you're one of the producers, and then I am, well, Andrew, real quick, you said something about you had produced a short, so what's the difference between a short and then this documentary film length, because it's more of a feature film length, this pressing on is, right? Right,
1: so our uh, final runtime was a little more than an hour and a half, Um, an hour and 20 minutes is pretty much feature length, sometimes maybe 80 minutes is... Uh, feature length, um, which is, I guess, the same. Uh, but, and for most purposes, less than that would be a short, um, or you know, broadcast feature length. Like if you saw a short special that was like forty-five minutes on, uh, like History Channel, mm-hmm. you might be able to consider that feature length. So we hadn't done anything that long. Um, so the the difference, you know, mostly there was runtime. Um, but then we find out that take it, doing a feature take three years, <laughs> whereas a short might take like our client projects a commercial 30 second TV ad, that's about a month from like sign yeah. contract to deliver and upload to the stations. Yeah,
2: whereas, film that in like one day, you know. <laughs> right, the
1: the whole process of it was definitely way more labor intensive mm-hmm. than than creating something short.
0: So they're doing screen printing right next door. So that's what that the pressure washer sounds. So sorry about that. I can't control when they do that. But hopefully you can't hear it too bad. I I
2: didn't
1: hear it, actually.
0: Oh, Oh, terrific. At least not over the sound of
2: my own voice.
0: (laughs) All right. Oh, oh, go ahead, Kevin. I was going
2: to say, I think for us, you know, there always was this goal. We want to bring a feature length story to the screen. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to figure out, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, later. But what some of those challenges are and. You know, you look at it and approach it totally differently in terms of telling a story and how are you arcing things and laying it out, and, you know, piecing it all together. And, you know, that's where Andrew really kind of comes together and weaves that story throughout the whole piece. But, you know, the challenge of a feature from the first day was really exciting to us. And so that's kind of why we gravitated towards that, you know. I mean, you could go on Vimeo and find a two, three minute beautiful letterpress video. Um, but we wanted to really take uh, this opportunity to dive in depthly like, to this community to really explore. And, you know, we felt that the best way to do that was a feature.
0: Yeah. So one of the questions that I, so this started as a Kickstarter, I think, and then you guys got it uh, funded and then it's kind of blown up and done uh, a lot of things, but you must've shot a ton more footage than what is in the, the, piece because some of the clips so I got a link and you let me watch it and it was great I'm so glad I got to see it it was fantastic I can't wait I know Abby in um, in the middle of the country I can't think she's already told us where she was I can't uh, Kansas City Missouri let's make sure we got that clear uh. So, but, uh, and it, um, so Abby is really excited and she's hoping that it'll be in a city near her. And so, but I was really thankful that I was able to to watch it, but then I'm seeing all these clips that I'm doing for these promos that you guys send me a bunch of clips out and I'm like, these, this wasn't even, this didn't even make the cut. This didn't make the (laughs) cut. This didn't make the cut. And I was like, there's so much more. So how much were you filming? How much footage time did you film? And then you, you got it down to, um, an hour and 40 minutes or something, right?
1: Yeah, so I mean, that was a whole process in and of itself. I've got the, I might try and use the screen share thing here, see if this works, because I've got the like project file, you know, pulled up here. Um, is it working? Yes. Okay, so you can see like this media folder, and then let me, see if I get the info on it, it's 17.8 terabytes. So that's all the assets of this, the thing um and then if you go down into production um just going over the server like these are all of the different shoots that we had some of these are interviews other things um you know an interview in itself let's see like jim daggs he's a pretty big interview throughout the thing seven cards uh well that's pulling up. but i mean we what do we do kevin 19 interviews yeah, it, it was
2: 19 or 20 total interviews across, you know, I mean, we went across the Midwest, probably like five to seven different states. And I mean, so when you think of some of the challenges with that, you have all this data, where's it going to go? I mean, I feel like a lot of times we're used to dealing with files that are 10, maybe 20 megabytes in terms of like, you know, Adobe Illustrator or you know some type of graphic design, you know, more print geared document. But, you know, as soon as you start capturing all that footage, it adds up and, So I think it, we had quite a few meetings about planning on where all this data is going to go and how we're going to back it up, and um, it ended up being this massive hard drive thing. I think it's like 48, 50 terabytes, you know, big just to fit it all in. Right. But, you know, in layman's terms, like, I think that equates to, I mean, how many hours do you think of footage, Andrew?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, it's hard to say because each, we did 19 interviews, and each interview was probably an hour and a half long, you know, so... Just in interviews, there's probably more than like 25 hours worth of content there. Um, and then, you know, we we are incorporating like historic films and that kind of thing. Um, but So part of our process with all that, and that was kind of the writing phase. You would do all these interviews, and somebody would give you like a new nugget of information that you then had to go pursue um, and, and look a little more into. I'm trying to pull up like our Google Docs stuff here. Um, but yeah, they... Oh, go ahead, Kevin.
2: Yeah, I was going to say the other thing while you're pulling that up. I mean, so we ended up shooting this entire film uh, with a red cinema camera. So that's the camera that they're using on, I mean, major motion pictures. uh, And we shot it at 5K resolution. You know, that way it holds up. And so we've mastered it all at 4K. And so working through that process, I mean, it just eats up your data. Um, In addition, shooting it in RAW, and maybe this is just for like the one or two people that care about this technical stuff. Uh, in the chat but shooting it in raw um, is basically like shooting a you know still photography like you with your dslr and raw versus jpeg it allows you to have a lot more control in terms of the color and the final look at the end of the process Um, and i think that's part of the reason why the film looks so good Um, but again lots of data lots of management
0: so it looked like you guys had a drone in some of the shots so i'm like really want to have a DJI Mavic Pro, it's my goal sometime this year to get one of those. So were you shooting with a drone or was somebody just in a hot air balloon or something?
1: Uh, we did shoot with a drone, which was kind of a stressful day. Um, <laughs> one of our guys, Freddie, who's on staff here at Bayonet, in the film, he was also like our everything audio. Um, I mean, we were a small crew, so everybody was doing a little bit of everything. But he actually built his own drone um, that could carry the red. Um, and then, uh, on set, we kind of were like a little, we don't want to use our primary camera and put it up in the air and crash it or anything. (laughs) Uh, so we shot on a GH4. Um, but he also has a couple of other like, uh, prosumer type drones. Um,
2: what's cool about drones? I mean, the drone that he built will literally, it takes up the entire back of my Ford Explorer. If you were to, I don't even think it would fit. I think you have to rent a van. It's so big and so massive because it holds that cinema camera
1: and it's eight Uh, propellers right
2: It's eight propellers but uh freddie who works here he's all faa licensed and he has taken basically the same test you know so to do drones commercially uh, you have to uh, go through the faa and you Mm -hmm. take the same test that actual pilots take yep and so he's fully licensed and all of that and we can fly you know commercially with this thing rather than some of the uh you know you see the smaller ones now that you can just send up and that kind of stuff. So commercially, it was like, so
0: like gerbils and stuff are going to get um, right? start yeah. getting tickets and. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it was cool to be able to utilize that technology, um, especially you know I think at the beginning of the film three years ago when we started this project, you know none of us had ever used a drone. We had never filmed with it. I don't even think Freddie had started building his yet. And so to be able to be in production when that became available to us, I mean it just kind of shows how fast things are changing. You know, unlike letterpress.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's a, I mean, there's a whole like story aspect to of it, too, so, I mean, one of our goals with the documentary is, like, Letterpress is, uh, the things that it, you produce with it are flat, it's images, and, um, you know, aside from showing the machines, the artwork is kind of flat, um, and it has, like, a historic tendency with what we're talking about. I mean, we talk about the Gutenberg Bible in the film, and we talk about uh, how type is made and that kind of thing and its impact on society. But we didn't want, we wanted something that was a little more universal, like the story that we were telling, we didn't want to strictly be technical where if you were a letterpress nerd, you'd totally enjoy it. But if you are a letterpress nerd who like brought your nephew to see it, he'd be like totally bored. Um, So one of the things we talked about was like, it would be really cool because we heard about people moving presses and how that is like a huge undertaking. Um, So we were like, well, let's try and find somebody who is moving a press uh, and then we could get that drone shot of like driving into the sunset, right, with this press on the trailer. Um, and we were looking, and people were reaching out to us. And then it turned out that teammate Adam were buying another press. They're pretty major characters in the film, um, which actually, like, we had filmed some stuff with them, stuff that you see at the farmer's market, um, and some stuff in their home. And then when we went back to film this press being. Uh, Moved it ended up becoming a big portion of the story and it helped add a lot of human element to it So it's like this thing that started as a technical well We have access to this drone and it wouldn't it be nice to make our documentary a little more engaging by having some drone footage actually turned into uh, some of the most I think like human and uh, Identifiable like storylines within the film.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was really nice. So all right so now we're gonna go to question two which is Kevin, who, you're, you are one of the producers. What's your role as a producer? And then how many people worked on the film? And then what were their roles? Like, what was Andrew's role? Cool.
2: Awesome. So I am Kevin. I am one of our producers. Uh, Andrew, who already introduced himself, he's uh, one of our directors, uh, him and Aaron Beckloff. Uh, Andrew was also our lead editor for the whole project and overall kind of creative vision and direction that we were going to go. Um, So, I mean, what does a producer do? That's kind of what you're asking, and I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, But, basically, uh, the producer is responsible for starting the project, trying to identify and find funds for the project, seeing it all the way through production, so where are we, what are we shooting, how are we going to do this, and kind of controlling some of the budget through that whole process. Okay, well, we we can't go out to Alaska to shoot this film. We have to do it locally here in the Midwest. Um, through all the way through post and getting it into distribution and, you know, making sure that that whole timeline is responsible. So I guess if there's like one person to help see it all the way through and to kind of be the organizational voice of it all, I suppose that's me. (laughs) Um, But when we talk about like people that worked on the film, you know, we really had a core group of five to six people that were on set with us most of the time. Sometimes it was even smaller than that. And so, you know, that's a lot of times where myself and Andrew, you know, maybe on a bigger commercial shoot that we do, we're not necessarily moving around stands and we're not getting into the nitty gritty. But, you know, this really was a team effort from all of us. I mean, there were countless times where, you know, we'll move stuff, we'll, you know, go run to get whatever, and you know, just kind of take care of all of that really as a team. Um, and then when we brought it back to post, I think there was probably maybe 10 to 12 people total that touched it from. You know, our composer to our graphic designer to the person doing the After Effects work uh, in some of it, and to the historical archive stuff. Um, so, I mean, really, you know, on a whole major feature-length film, this is a very small number, but you know, we're able to kind of have that hands-on approach uh, to get it done.
0: That's cool. Okay, so so you had two directors, I guess, right? Uh, so Andrew's the main one, and then Aaron because she had the history with it she didn't have a history being a director right right yeah so right.
2: maybe we could back up a little bit the whole project started with uh erin wanting to archive these uh, these older gentlemen that andrew had mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um you know we were afraid that as they get older you know this knowledge base is going to be lost to time Um, And, you know, these ancient processes, you know, people forgot how to make glass back in the, you know, I don't know what century it was, but some old century, and they had to relearn it. And so there was this, you know, fear that all this knowledge would be lost. And so Erin initially wanted to capture it, you know, with a, um, like audio recordings or just an iPhone or something just to have it and preserve it. And that's kind of where we came in. Um, She necessarily hasn't done, like you said. This kind of stuff we have, but she's done letterpress and we haven't done that. And so it turned out to be this just perfect harmony where we could come together, collaborate and kind of figure out what this story is. Each bringing talents to it, um, but each also building each other up and making the end goal, I think, a lot better.
0: So, all right. So... That gives me a good kind of idea of where to go next and understand what people's role are. But then you also had, I I know you mentioned you had somebody doing the sound because there's beautiful, um, as all good movies do, they have uh, the track that goes along with it that sets the tone and the mood and that you don't even really notice, but you would probably notice it more if it wasn't there. But it's also, you do get to hear the machines a little bit. I mean, there is some definitely... Some Somebody was saying, or it could be that I've watched so many videos this past week on Letterpress just uh, <laughs> preparing. Um, one guy I was watching, I think, was saying, you know, there's just such a great sound. These are, hand, you know, foot-fed. These are foot-driven. And it's just, you know, it's kind of like this sort of train sort of sound. You know, it's not maybe that loud, but it's definitely louder than, you know, mm-hmm. quiet. So, yeah.
1: So I guess going off of that, I mean, there was a scene in the film where we're talking all about the machinery um, and how it's been built to last and all of that. And we were working with the composer. um, Our composer is named Mark Greenberg, and he's actually like the studio manager and like one of the studio musicians for Wilco. Um, So his office is like their recording studio, The Loft, in Chicago, um, which is cool because he had access to all of their uh, instruments and that kind of thing. And he could, um, that, like, I think afforded him the opportunity to take on the project because it's like day job as well, working for Wilco. Um, so there was a scene where we're talking about this machinery and everything, and we have this really nice track in there. But he and I kind of both decided, well, let's just let the music, like, let's take the music out and just let the machinery provide the score for this section. And then that kind of puts it into Freddie, the sound guy, sound engineer, sound designer's hands, um, and the editing's team to kind of beef that up because it wasn't like mark took the sound stuff and put it into a keyboard and actually played them as instruments (laughs) or anything which could be cool um but it was just putting all that stuff in there i mean some of there's like machines that are like pneumatic so you got these air compressor type sounds and then mechanical stuff and the monotype keyboard dings when they play it so we were able to like build out a rhythm of like In the footage, you see people typing on the the line of the typecasting machines, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is an image of Freddie doing some sound mixing uh, for the film.
2: And you'll see in the middle that uh, Freddie's actually, he's doing some Foley in addition to the mixing. Um, So he's recreating some of the sounds that, you know, we necessarily couldn't capture on scene. With the actual, um, you know, that's a chase. And you have all the components to do a print for letterpress just right there and kind of recreating that.
0: So Brandon asked a question, analog versus digital, who wins?
1: <laughs> that, uh, I mean, that's a pretty big like conversation that we have in the film. <laughs> it was something that we like, <clears throat> we talk, you talk, of, I feel like the film tries to make a case that that, that analog is, is better. I'd say in terms of filmmaking, it, it's not, I enjoy analog <laughs> filmmaking. I've actually got this like VHS camera here on my desk um, for a certain aesthetic or whatever, but. Filmmaking-wise, we couldn't have done everything that we were doing on film. You couldn't shoot a documentary in hours and hours and hours and just keep recording on film would just be way too expensive. Um, but in terms of print, I mean, I think the impact that it's had on the lives of the people that we filmed—like they made a strong case for for analog being better—and it's it's all rooted in that um, the tangible aspect. I think I think uh, you know. Today, everything is on a computer. We do everything, stare into a screen all the time. And then we have to buy like a fidget spinner to like keep our hands busy. I don't know what's going on there. It seems kind of weird. But it's like, I, I, I mean, I would say that analog is superior in some ways. It just depends on
0: what, what we're doing. I have another question from anonymous attendee. They asked, What was your, and this is a safe place, anonymous attendee. You can actually use your first name. We will not. It's Nothing weird happens. So what was your favorite moment while filming? Any one person, process, place, piece stand out above the rest? It's a great question.
2: Hmm. There were a lot of really good moments. That's why I'm struggling to think about something here. Um,
1: I would say like a person, there was a guy, Jim Daggs, uh, who we filmed, and he's in the trailer. Um, he's also in the movie. At the very beginning, we do like a reenactment of him telling the story of when he was a kid, yeah. Uh, first coming across letterpress, and the thing that I thought was really cool about Jim Dax is like he started it like as a preteen, essentially, and he's still doing it today, and he's like in his late 60s. Um, he has a modern print shop in Ackley, Iowa. But then in back, it's like a warehouse that he basically, whereas like a lot of the characters like collected a bunch of letterpress stuff and they have tons and tons of stuff. Uh, and they could like, you ask them, you know, do you have some crazy font from, Victorian font from whenever, and they could sift through their stuff and find it or give them a couple of days. This guy's thing was that he had like a functioning letterpress shop. You could put a crew of like 10 people in there and you could produce a daily newspaper. Like he had all the equipment. And it was all well-maintained and organized uh, and like just totally functional, which I thought was like, that was really cool. We did a lot of the reenactments in his shop because it was like stepping back into time uh, going in there. Right. And then he just had a cool side thing. He was the mayor of the town that he lived in. He had been run unopposed for 10 years.
0: Oh, that's great. (laughs) He could print all his own signage, too, because right, he wiped exactly. out the competition for sure. Exactly. So that was that little piece that's on your desk, Andrew. It says, paper is easier to replace than fingers. That yeah. was him, right? And he talks yeah. about that in one of the um, little, the yeah, little uh, tidbits that I um, shared that you guys had shared with me as a teaser, kind of.
1: Yeah, and he... It's backwards, but... Um,
0: it's not for us. We see it correctly. Oh,
1: okay. Cool, cool. So um, he... Yeah, this was something that he had hanging in his shop and we actually did a little segment with him where he goes through and talks about well, I lost this finger in a in this machine and this one went around the chain in this sprocket, Um and that was I mean, it, I don't know, something about that was really cool to me, like this idea of the craftsman you could kind of And again, this guy's dedicated his whole life to it to the point that like he's missing
2: appendages from it.
0: Right. So All right. I'm going to go back to an earlier quote. Oh, Kevin, did you have a, your favorite part? Oh,
2: I do, and I have a screen share prepared. Which oh, I'm really-
0: terrific.
2: <laughs> you got to use the screen share. Amen. Um, so, I think one of my favorite moments. Uh, so, we're filming with Paul Aiken, um, and he's about an hour north of Chicago and runs the Platinum Press Museum. Uh, and I mean, he probably has three to 400 presses in this small, and it's, not, it's very small uh, warehouse. Um, but so we wrap filming with him. We're just kind of hanging out shooting the breeze uh, And we're asking him about his uh, casting machines um, because a lot of uh, letterpress printers Especially these older gentlemen also cast and so they'll cast with this pure lead um, And so we're like, what's that machine over there? That looks cool. And he's like, oh, that's a Ludlow And so he goes over and he flips it on. He's like you guys want to cast some uh, type. I'm like, yes uh, Is it dangerous? It's hot lead um, he's like, nah, don't worry about it. Uh, so he shows us how to use this machine, and it's probably the size of a small Buick. Uh, and so you go over and you, you put in your font uh, or your type and your molds. Uh, you line them up, all the letters that you want, uh, and you put it in the machine and you pull this massive lever. Uh, and then he's like, you know, when you pull that stand back, and he kind of like scooches back a little bit. Uh, he's like, sometimes it just squirts hot lead everywhere. Uh, and so he cast the first one shows us how to do it. He's like, okay, I gotta go. You guys feel free to use it as much as you want. And so we, uh, obviously had to stick around for a little bit while we cleaned up. Right. Uh, and we had to cast our, um, company here, uh, Bayonet Media. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. It turned out pretty cool. Can you guys see that? And so that is a, you could actually print with that, uh, right now, uh, if you wanted to. And so don't eat it. It is lead but
0: yeah. So when he, when, so this is one question I had, so I had not ever seen that machine. I mean, clearly I knew it existed because there's type. And so what he's doing is he's making type for people and people are able, but uh-huh. it looked like he would set something and then just dump it back in to get re, you know, bubbled up and make new type for the next thing. Or was he putting that back in, you know, and having a drawer that was just for that? So,
1: so no, go
2: ahead.
1: Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different. It's all called typecasting, but that was so the first machine um, was the one we filmed was the inner type, but the like famous one is the linotype, which there's actually a whole another documentary out there uh, called Linotype: The Film, um, and that was like uh, somebody called it. Oh, Mark Twain called it like the eighth wonder of the world or something like that. And it, I mean, it's fascinating to watch that machine work. It's so huge that you. They had to sit in these little chairs um, because that's where the keyboard had to be so that the thing could fit through a doorway. Um, But it is like it's it's casting type. It's mechanical. You type into it and it's putting it's got a little pot that it keeps hot and it's casting lead type as you go. And then they would type out a whole article for a newspaper, print it and then just melt it down and use it again. Uh, and then they had a little story that, like, guys would keep their coffee or, like, their lunch warm on the little pot that, uh, that was there. And you see that in the film where Jim Dax went in the section where he was talking about his fingers and all that. He's, like, tending to that little pot and pouring stuff in there.
2: You know, by yeah. reusing, you could almost say letterpress printers were, like, the first green movement mm-hmm. to happen.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And some were foot-fed, right? There were yeah. many that are just hand or hand-powered, right? Mm-hmm. So I still am interested in going back a little bit further and saying, so coming up with the idea. So I know Aaron had the idea. You guys met through Joe's sister or whatever. Uh, there was a family connection somehow, right? So yep. then what was it that gets you to be like, ooh, this is an itch. So did you do research prior to say, hey, you know what? I think there's a this big movement. Or did you just trust blindly? And be like, yeah, we're going to put all our eggs in this basket with Aaron. Like, it there, there must be something that you have to get, kind of go through. Because making this is a lot of time. It's a lot of money. And then you're putting a lot kind of on the line. So, And I kind of want to know where the Kickstarter came in. Was this before you had committed, after you had committed? Kind of just so that people get an idea of the process.
2: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think i probably can speak for both me and andrew and the rest of our team the first time we saw a actual press printing it was just this eye-opening moment for uh, for us i mean to actually see something to put the paper on roll it across or you know every press is a little different with its mechanical movements um and to not really know what you're printing because when you look at it it's all reversed and then to you know pull that piece of paper up and to see that finished print i mean i there's this call, I think, that our generation has back to the physical. Uh, you know, we stare at computer screen, we're staring at one right now all day long, uh, and we wanna go home and we wanna figure out how something's made. You know, people wanna get into woodworking, people wanna work on motorcycles, there's all kinds of stuff, um, and so that's that call. And so, yeah, I think really the first time we saw it, I, don't, I think you'd probably agree maybe, Andrew, we're like, there's something here.
1: Right, yeah, I mean, it's like a piece of machinery that you put an abstract idea into and it spits out art. Like that just seems really cool to me. And I think we, I mean, we weren't gonna do a documentary on like, I don't know, people who make like yo-yos or something because it was just like, there's a lot of layers to it. There's communication, et cetera. But it's also like the craft and hands-on movement is growing. So we figured, you know, would be an audience. And again, talking about Netflix, like you, you have to, as a filmmaker, you have to make something, um, you don't have to, but it's a good idea if you want to keep making films to make something that people will watch. Mm -hmm. Um, And people are in tune with that. You know, you've got shows like Dirty Jobs, shows like How It's Made, uh, and then just like a craft movement of like, you know, people are obsessed with all of this, like where did your coffee come from and how was it made and how was it grown and everything. Um, or like, I don't know, I feel like wood and leather or all that kind of stuff is in vogue right now. And this just totally feeds into that. I think audiences just have an appetite for this kind of story.
2: Yeah, so, so going, just- going back to your question, the Kickstarter. Um, and so we, we realized early on that, you know, this probably isn't a film that we could convince a, uh, a studio or you know someone to fund. Um, That really, I mean, Letterpress has this grassroots movement and the maker movement in general to it. Um, And so we wanted to embrace that. And so that's kind of why we chose to go the Kickstarter route is, you know, one, we have this massive community that we can tap into from designers to art directors to hobbyists to Letterpress printers to, you know, makers. Um, And everyone we told about it, you know, hey, we're thinking about doing this. I mean, they just got so excited. Uh, And so uh, we knew that we had this natural built-in audience just kind of waiting. Uh, There hadn't been a film, a feature film, made about letterpress printing, so we kind of knew that we were onto something there. Um, So I think really Kickstarter has like two purposes, and one is to, you know, obviously raise some funds to help your production, um, but there's another whole element where it's building this community around this common goal. Um, We were very fortunate. A lot of the printers in the film and a lot of the letterpress community came together to help donate um, awesome prints and rewards, you know, for our backers. And, you know, so it really worked out perfect. We think, uh, for this film. And so I'd highly recommend doing it, especially if you're trying to kind of reach out and build more of an audience.
0: So when, what was the timeline? So when did you do the Kickstarter? And then you're releasing, it comes out like if, like I didn't, I, I've been in a hole clearly and I don't know if the Kickstarter was in this year. If it was, then I really was in a hole. Um, but if it wasn't, then I don't know. I just somehow missed it, but I bought it. i I'm a, I'm a believer. There's my letter there's my press on poster. Yeah. We got to try to stand to the side. Um, but, and there's all kinds of things that just as a person I can buy even after the Kickstarter, which we'll share all those in just a, it's, it's shop.letterpressfilm.com just in case anybody's listening and has to go and get it right now. But, um, We'll give you a coupon code at the end. <laughs> okay, great. So, but where? What was the time frame? When? When was the like? Had you shot some stuff and then you did the Kickstarter? Because the one of the things with Kickstarter is having that video that's amazing really does help.
2: Yeah. So the video is critical to a Kickstarter. I mean, you one you have to be able to show off that you know you can do this, but you also have to explain what are you going to do and how are you going to do this? How are you going to pull it off? Um, so I believe. We started the project about January first, uh, two thousand. Let's see, fifteen. It uh, was the initial like conversation, and then so that February we we started uh, talking seriously and saying how can we do this. Uh, and that's about the same time that we decided to shoot this video for the Kickstarter. Uh, we wanted to explain it, and I think if you go to the updates tab all the way down, it'll say like this is when you first started. Um, so we launched the Kickstarter. Uh, sometime late April. Yeah, April 23rd. April 23rd, 2015. Uh, so the Kickstarter ran, I believe, for 30 days. Uh, and then after that, we kind of jumped head first. Uh, that summer, we did a lot of research um, leading up to kind of late summer in the fall when we started our first round of filming. Um, and so that first round of filming, we drove across the Midwest. We visited a lot of shops, uh, a lot of basements. Uh, and we kind of brought all that footage back to our offices and just started digesting some of it, figuring out, um, you know, where is this story? Where is it going? And, you know, Andrew kind of led a lot of the efforts in that. Uh, so following that, um, you know, in addition to this whole time, we're doing client work. Uh, we have sure. to pay bills, you know, this documentary is great, uh, but it doesn't necessarily pay the bills. And so we're doing ad agency stuff, commercials. Um, but anyway, so we brought it all back, started to figure out the story and we realized, We gotta go shoot some more stuff. We have to continue the story a little bit. Um, We gotta fill in here. And, you know, I think it was interesting as we went through production, we started to kind of ask targeted questions as the story started to develop more. You know, I think the first couple of interviews were very broad um, as we kind of tried to learn as much as we can and just gather that knowledge. But once uh, the story was more established, we could really direct and we could figure out, okay, we need to make sure we go back to Iowa and we need to talk to Tammy and Adam about such and such um, at the Red Door Press. Um, So we did all that. Um, By the end of that year or the next year, uh, we had had pretty much a working cut um, and we were doing some test screenings here locally in Indianapolis, kind of to gather feedback. Uh, So then we went through the entire post process where that's sound, that's color, and we can kind of talk about that if anyone wants to. Um, From there, we entered into a bunch of film festivals and started our uh, kind of marketing efforts a little bit. Um, but you know the film festival timeline is you submit in say September or October and you have to wait till February to hear back um, So we had entered a lot of festivals and unfortunately we didn't get into any of the major ones um, And that's okay We know a lot of films that didn't and went down the same kind of self-distribution path and are just wildly successful um, A great one to come to mind is Indie Game uh, The film, you know, they just kind of said no film festivals or whatever and you know a little bit of that I think we can attribute to the climate um, you know, ours isn't necessarily a, um, an edgy you know, civil documentary <laughs> in the middle of you know, some third world country. Right. Um, it's just happy-go-lucky feeling about letterpress. Um, and so now we've kind of taken that, and we are currently screening the film. We had our premiere uh, hat show print a couple weeks ago here, uh, and now we're screening the film, and then this fall we'll have the digital release, so that'll be on iTunes and streaming, and you know, we've, we're hoping for Netflix eventually after that.
0: Cool. So Abby had a question. Are any of you hoping to get into letterpress or printmaking after having filmed this, did you get to play around with anything while filming? And you've said you got to make some type, which was pretty cool. And I know, I know Andrew, you're, you like to build or rebuild motorcycles. So did this kind of scratch an itch for you? Is this something that you will maybe look into? I mean, it's kind of an investment money. Right. right? Yeah. So
1: I I mean, we, One thing I like about my job in filmmaking is you get to like, and especially with documentary, you get to dive into other people's lives and everything. And I'm kind of like a serial hobbyist. Uh, I have a lot of interests and um, getting to dive into this world and experience it all was really great. Um, I think at the very beginning I would have been interested in owning a press and everything, but as we went on, um, like seeing some of these guys, like, So Dave Pete, he's one of the main characters in the film and somebody who's, he's here in Indianapolis, so he's in a lot of our bonus material, that kind of thing. Um, When we filmed in his basement, he had to take a year to clean it out before we could film there. And it had been something like 15 years since he printed in there because he had so much stuff. And so, like, I have uh, five motorcycles and they're in, like, various states of completion. I have a couple that I can just get on and ride at any time. But I, it's like, to me it became almost a cautionary tale that like your hobby can almost get in the way of itself, you know, so I, to me to have all that stuff to move it all around, then my three years of making a film, I feel pretty good about it and it can just go out there and into the world and that could be it for me. Um, right. Because <laughs> before you know it, you've got, you, you can't, like I said, I can't ride a motorcycle because it's not running. And I got to fix it and organize all the parts and get it out of the way to get to the one that is running and It just ends up becoming like you can't do anything. and, and even like Dave Churchman like uh, His wife was ill like they probably should move into a smaller house, but they couldn't because he just had so much stuff mm-hmm. So right. I think it's it's give-and-take like if we had a, a tabletop press and printed some things But also now we have tons of friends and could just go over to their place.
0: (laughs) Right. You could scratch that itch with them, right? If you absolutely needed to. So for sure. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, um, Kevin, were you aware before of, I mean, I think you kind of talked about or Andrew has talked about that there was this craftsmanship movement Mm -hmm. kind of, and, um, getting more in tune with doing things with your hands, but this, this more are you, were you more aware of this subculture culture within printmaking i guess and design and what kind of uh, morsels are in the movie that you can tell us about or uh, tease us with a little bit do you, I, uh, I know sure? that didn't answer no. The no, no. End. so <laughs>
2: um, i personally had no idea that this existed um, it's kind of funny looking back to my childhood my parents had a um a California type case on the wall in our kitchen and they just had little knickknacks and, you know, all kinds of stuff. I had no idea. I thought it was a cool shelf. Um, but in there <laughs> they had a, uh, a G and it was, you know, maybe about an inch by an inch. Um, cause my last name's Grazioli. Uh, and so as a kid, I always thought this like metal G was really cool. Um, only now, 30 years later, uh, did I realize that that's a piece of type. Uh, And that you know why is it there? It should be being used. Someone should be printing with that. You know, it's a shame that it's still in my parents' kitchen. Um, So, I really wasn't aware. And I think that's the thing that fascinates us the most about documentary filmmaking is that you Mm -hmm. dive into these subcultures. Um, You know, one day you could be on top of a mountain learning from astronomers, uh, and the next day you could be learning all about letterpress, and you get to dive so deep into something without necessarily making it your day job. Um, And so, but it is our day job. Uh, So it makes it really interesting uh, for us. And so we're always on this constant path of discovery, fact finding. Um, You know, in the movie, I think you'll find a lot of really great stuff. Um, Don't really know how to tease it here, Uh, but there is something for everyone, whether you're a collector, whether you're just a hobby printer, whether you want to know more about letterpress. uh, The one thing I will tease, I guess, if you're a current graphic designer or let's say you're working at an ad agency or you're an art director or you're kind of going down that path, um, you've just graduated from graphic design program, uh, you know, you've heard a lot of terms, um, kerning, letting, you know, what is that? Um, it's a term that's in all of our software programs. It's in Photoshop. Um, it's in Illustrator. Um, and so we really wanted to kind of figure it out. What is that? And so I really think If you're a graphic designer like that little section will definitely appeal to you
0: got check it out okay so what about what were some of the things that didn't make the the director line right andrew cut them out but they were um still great morsels i guess
1: um i mean there's a lot of like interesting stuff about some of these individual guys like i said the one guy was the mayor of the town um, Dave Pete, the guy who had the collection that he couldn't even like use this stuff. He, uh, helped patent the three coin slot on a payphone uh, for Westinghouse. Like he owns that patent. And he had this great story of how Westinghouse went out of business and he called to see if he could get a copy of that patent to like frame and put on his wall. And they're like, no, like our policy is to destroy all that stuff. And then they called him back like an hour later and they're like, you know what? That exact patent is on my desk right now. I'm just going to send it to you. Um, so, like, there was a lot of cool stories about that that kind of thing. These guys are totally fascinating. But it was just like, you can, again, like if you're watching this documentary with you drag your your mother to see it, you may not be able to go down that rabbit hole, or you like uh, lose people's just lose. They would lose interest in it. Um, there was a lot of stuff about. There's a section in there about trade and trade school and blue collar worker like I kind of would have liked to go on a whole tangent about the value of Mm. uh, trade degrees and why are we like putting a stigma on that but that's like a whole other documentary in and of itself Um, there's a whole thing about photopolymer that we didn't get to get into Mm -hmm. but there is a deleted scene on the DVD uh, that talks that kind of shows that process Um, yeah I mean there was a lot of interesting stuff and avenues again you just like you can't spend too much time on any one thing or you might lose people's uh, lose lose right. interest with the audience and then one thing i want to talk about kind of the tease thing you're going you're talking about there's a section in the film this guy rich hopkins who he has he has the the molds or matrices they call them that Cast the type that printed the Declaration of Independence, Mm -hmm. and the fact that like this piece of equipment that printed the like arguably most uh, important document in American history is just in this guy's basement. I thought was really cool, but he understands the relevancy. He talks a lot about the film of how like the desktop printer came available and put some of his shop out of business. He had a hundred thousand dollar machine that got replaced by a a PC that cost like six grand. Mm-hmm. So he, he what's kind of cool is like we have that scene, he kind of feels a little curmudgeonly and like hopeless, but then you see later where he's taken a MacBook, it's an older MacBook, but he's taken this MacBook and connected it to a typecasting machine, that thing I was describing earlier that like Yeah, that metal was type. cool.
0: Yeah, that it was had, cool.
1: it's like some guy in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, has like designed this system of pneumatic tubes. To hook like a USB port up to a thing from the 1900, or its like late 1800s—that thing was designed and manufactured, and he's using and he could type everything in and press go, and then it casts it. Like that is—it was completely amazing, and then it's just like some guy invented this thing in his basement. Um, it, it really gave me a lot, a lot of respect for these guys because you—you you kind of. Um, in this craft thing, or talking about you know media and the portrayal of like dirty jobs, you might think like, okay, this guy, my father's a machinist. Okay, he knows how to use a machine, but like he didn't go to college. Well, these guys could probably like recite recite Shakespeare to you because they printed it, you know, and and invent and build a thing that hooks a laptop up to a you know this old machine. You know, it's pretty incredible. And there's a lot of little stories and things where we're examining these guys and trying to give them a platform in the film to talk about how they spent their, their lives at work.
0: Right. So Andrew, this is a question for you. So you have this kind of overarching theme that goes through and then you're doing most of the editing. So you're really deciding what stays and what goes and then you know that you have this team that you are kind of accountable to that you're going to have to show. And then maybe they're like, well, why did you cut that out? And you're like, well, this is why. And so, so what, just remind us again, what the overarching theme was, and then what were some things that maybe Kevin or, or Aaron was like, Hey, why did you cut that out? Like that part. And then you have to kind of sell it to them as to why it wasn't part of that storyline. If it was about him being mayor or, or, even though those were interesting, you it's really, you're kind of having to be the writer in a way of something yeah. that you didn't write. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I, it's hard to answer that kind of directly, but I could kind of take you through the process of like what we did with all of that. Um, I, w- I would say that mostly it's the opposite that I would have stuff too long and they're like, this is boring. You need to cut it out. <laughs> yeah. And we would show it to like our DP and he's a pretty like, uh
0: what's dp mean
1: a a director of photography joe so that's joe he's one of the co-producers He was the director of photography and um i guess i would say he's not easily entertained maybe that's a nice way of putting it so you know you could show it to him and it was like if joe thinks it's boring you know the the kind of regular joe at the theater might also think that this is boring Um, so there was a lot of like slimming things down and focusing your attention on
2: things. The first cut was four hours long.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and we sat down and watched that like scene by scene over a couple of days with all of our staff. Um, but it was, I mean, so you would watch the scene and you would say, what's, what are you picking up on in this and what's resonating? And then I think an editor, I mean, cutting it down is part of your job. But it's also like, what can we kind of subtextually Mm -hmm. let show through or make it implied um, to kind of, and let the audience kind of draw out their own, you know, be vague enough to let the audience draw out what they wanted, what they want to see in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, I mean, some of it is just like totally like ditch digging. I mean, there's a section in the film that's all historic footage. Um, that's just one minute where they're talking about there's this transition from uh, letterpress to offset, and we have all this historic footage, and Mark created this track that was kind of reminiscent of the old powerhouse track that you hear in, like, Looney Tunes when you see a factory in the Looney Tunes thing. So we intentionally, like, took all of this stuff with these early computers and kind of cut it up next to this song that kind of put a little satire spin on it that was kind of saying, "Well, society was really quick to adapt all this stuff, mm. and these guys who spent 20 years learning how to do it—it it was all everything they knew was the guy says it's all—it's um, mm-hmm. it, all locked up on a little box now called a computer, and a lot of mm-hmm. jobs are going that way, that same way. So I was trying to through the editing, kind of like, well, here is this really fast like head spinning." Point In time where basically all these guys got put out of business by something that feels almost comedic now when you see the guys like I'll now send it over to the video display screen by pressing return on this terminal and it's like it seems comedic now And I think at the time to those guys they were sitting back like well What's this crappy technology and just wait for everybody to forget about it and move on?
0: but really they these guys had to I mean they like Dave. I think is the guy with the fingers. Guy. So That's think, Jim. Jim. Dad. There's a lot of Dave. There Dave's were a lot of Daves. Yeah. There's
2: three, two Daves and
1: three Jims in the film.
0: So There's Jim, just... the fingers. Jim. He mm-hmm. was like, you know, I really had to. Um, he had to make a decision. And another Dave said he. I think it was him who. You know, they were like, I was the only guy that was doing this, and I was like oh, I don't know if this is going to be a good business decision. And a lot of people did. They let them go because it was a business decision and it wasn't as efficient or effective of a method to print. But, And I, I think that it's amazing that Jim kept and held on to everything because it's a lot of commitment space-wise and money-wise if you're if you're running a business.
1: Right. I, I I was kind of thinking about this today with making some social media stuff. And it's like, we live in a time where you have like the highest amount of technology in terms of like resolution quality. You know what I mean? Um, you can, you know, your iPhone can take something, a picture that could probably be put into like use in uh, outdoor advertisement, like a bus shelter or something like that, you know, and a prosumer camera can capture, an image that can be blown up to a billboard. And we're all putting all this effort into what we do to make it look really good and nice. But the end thing is like, our professional tools are like, yeah, but here's the preset. Like, you go into Photoshop and it has the presets for Instagram. And we're shrinking it all down and everything. And I think that's the thing is like, you can get by by just shooting for Instagram or just designing for Instagram. And like, well, it doesn't matter if it's a little pixelated or if I don't need those details because we're viewing it in this little screen. And I think that as a professional, you have that choice of like, am I going to still strive for more or am I going to just Mm -hmm. do the minimum? And these guys that held on knew like, well, this technology is superior to the old way of doing things creates a technically better product. So do I want to just produce something and slap it out and get it out the door and cash a check? or do I want to keep being a craftsman? And that was the risk that these guys took. Um, And it sort of paid off for them because now this machinery is in vogue, uh, like a a Vandercook that was like a proof press that was something that they just had as like a side tool, you know, the way we might have an iPad or something now is going for like $14,000. And so since they they knew like, well, there's some quality here, I'm going to hang on to this stuff. It's sort of paid off for that. Yeah. And it's more interesting, whereas all that sort of transient technology, you know, is just it's just
0: gone. Right. So, uh Kent wants to ask Andrew if there were any um, big hot discussions between you and Aaron about what must stay and go. Did you guys hmm. duke it out at all? I feel like I don't Kevin, do you remember I anything?
2: Well, I'll tell you from a third party perspective. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I I think each Aaron and Andrew approached the film completely differently. Andrew is more of a storyteller, and Aaron is more of an academic. I mean, she teaches letterpress. Um, And so Aaron came into it just kind of, again, wanting to preserve that knowledge, to understand and to capture all of these things and to just put it out there. Um, And I think at the beginning of the process, there was a lot of, okay, well, we have to get this person to be in the film because we're going to lose him and we're going to lose that knowledge. Versus we need this person in the film because like that's the story and that's the direction that will carry it, mm. you know, through the entire thing. Um, and so there were a lot of sticky notes on the wall of who are we interviewing and, you know, who kind of says the repeat message and you know a little bit of that. And so there was a lot of that at the beginning. Uh, and then kind of as we got into editing, uh, I, I think both of both Andrew and Aaron kind of met in this like nice middle ground, you know, so Aaron may have wanted to make it more factual and very um you know it matter of fact the entire film um as to where we know that like to engage an audience for an hour and a half like you have to tell a little bit of a story you have to bring that emotional side you mm-hmm. have to have some natural pauses in the film to just let people enjoy the beauty of letterpress uh and so kind of going that route and finding this marriage really worked well but yeah there were there were a little bit of uh okay who's in this film who's in that film and that kind of right started.
1: and there was we all kind of had a the four sort of like the main producers, Joe, Kevin, Aaron and myself, like we all kind of had this agreement that like, we all get one thing that we're not gonna budge on. Yeah. Um, and I I feel like I kind of got two, maybe I got one for being the director, one for being the editor Very or something. Good. But like the first thing that we see in the film and this rea- reenactment, a lot of people were like, eh, that's not like, it doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's not letterpress. People want to know that this is letterpress. And I was really adamant about, but well, it was kind
0: is... of a good opening,
1: right? Like,
0: yeah. It was a good scene yeah. setter for the story,
1: right? And it's to me, it was like, well, this isn't strictly about letterpress; it's about how people. This theme, I mean, to me, the main theme of the film was we got we we do have a quote where he says it, but like it's a symbiotic relationship. These old guys are keeping the technology alive by literally like greasing the cogs, and then it's keeping them alive by giving them purpose and, and something to keep doing. You know, they, they, they said that they're going to keep printing until retirement and beyond then. And like if if they didn't have something to focus on, what else would they do? You know, so that that thing was important for me to show. Um, but, yeah, I think there was a lot of like Kevin said that that balance be- because we had two editors or sorry, two directors. Um, it definitely helped like to keep, cause again, I would have went on like a really cynical like tangent about trade school or whatever. And Aaron would help like reel me back in.
0: So Kent has a question. He's kind of giving a, uh, insight. I know he's already seen the movie. Um, what effect did the death of one of the principals have on the project?
2: Well, I mean, I'll kind of start that, and then maybe let you chime in here, and do, Yeah, um, you know, I, it, I I
0: just can't get past that. Kevin looks like he's in a witness protection. Do you guys see that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, keep going.
2: This is, this is my maker room. We just all kinds of. I'll give you the tour. Like, there's a disco ball. Um. So you know, we started the project again with that premise of one. Why is letterpress survived? You know, there's no reason for it. I can print with my printer and print something just a lot faster um, with why has it survived? And then we're going to lose this knowledge. Um, and that kind of led us down that same path. And so we started the project with that. And of course, you know, it goes through the back of your mind. Well, these guys are getting older and you know, the idea is to capture it, but of of course you, you never wish that you will have a principal, you know, pass away in the middle of filming. Um, and so that was a challenge for us. I mean, we had to kind of rely on stuff we had already captured. We couldn't necessarily go back and, Oh, we got to get this line from him here. Um, Mm. But I think it also presented a a challenge um, and an opportunity. Um, And so this whole time we are exploring this story about, you know, what does happen to all of Mm. your materials, your type, your presses, your ink, your papers, um, your cabinets, uh, and some of it can just amass. Uh, And when you see the film, you'll understand that the person that passed away, um, he had a massive collection of stuff. Um, and so what happens to that after, you know, who is left with it and who deals mm-hmm. with it? Um, and so that's kind of uh, the path that we went down a little bit. Um, so while it was unfortunate, you know, it did provide an additional story opportunity
0: uh, that we could explore. Yeah.
2: So, so right. we're
0: like almost at the end of the time, but I kind of want to get into a little bit of the marketing. If you guys have like another 10 minutes to give me. Sure. Yeah. So Andrew, yeah. what have you done to go about marketing the movie and, what kind of doors have you had to knock to get some of the venues uh, that you want to be a part of? How much does how, who you know play into that kind of uh, getting getting your foot in the right door, especially with something like Netflix? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, that, the whole marketing. Sorry, I just shared this thing I was looking up. This is the, from the edit. That's the whole movie in one timeline. So in wow. premiere, that's mm-hmm. the whole hour and a half, like clip by clip all the green stuff at the bottom is sound and all the stuff above is video so that's kind of the <laughs> what it looks like wow. uh, in the end all in one place anyway the marketing yeah that's a big part of it i mean we bayonet is sort of like a marketing agency a lot of our we're, we're pretty well versed in that um so that for me as a business owner like we want to keep making original content like this mm-hmm. we don't only want to make tv ads we don't only want to make like CEO videos of CEOs telling all the people at their company what's the quarterly update right Right. um so it it has to make money it has to make money so that we can pay our staff and hopefully do another one um so we we're I mean the kickstarter was a huge marketing endeavor I mean that was like just as much effort as we went through to make the film we went and That much effort went into doing the Kickstarter. There's a ton of content. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the trailer. There's like a behind-the-scenes thing with Aaron. Uh, There's all the stuff like the the stuff where we have like the Dave's making fun of Defiant.com. The Dave's sharing stuff from their collection, Uh, and just on Instagram and everything. I mean, it's it's a huge effort, and it's kind of fun, though, to take all these, like, little pieces from the film or things that we didn't use. Uh, I've started, like, we've got a thing where Dave Pete took us on a tour of his shop with a GoPro. We just, like, gave him a GoPro, and he's rocking around with, like, a selfie stick, like, this is that and the other and everything. So that will probably make it out there at some point. Um, we did a whole behind-the-scenes video of, like, making our credits uh, that's on the DVD. Because we actually letterpress printed the credits and then scanned them in, so it's like letterpress and stop motion, which is like two most tedious forms of things coming together. Like talking about analog on analog, (laughs) Uh, but it made for a cool effect. Um, So anyway, all that to say, like we're still trying to keep building our audience. We want to reach as big of a of an audience as possible. Um, Our one of our major goals was to get it onto Netflix. Um, We're about to screen. Uh, At um, screen at Adobe's home office, uh, Google, and Facebook, and then even we got invited to screen at Yeti Coolers, which is cool. Uh, They're a fun new brand. Um, But all of this to try and gain some attention and get it out there where people have seen it. And then hopefully we can, to give us some credibility to come back to someone and say, well, we made that documentary and now we want to make one about something else Mm -hmm. Uh, and try and bring like our perspective and our voice to some other subject. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. All right. So you're doing showings, Kevin, can you kind of take us through that? Yeah. And so how would somebody go about if they wanted you to come to their Like I know Abby wants you to come to Kansas city, Missouri. How does she go about doing that?
2: Awesome. So we are in a kind of our screening mode right now, and we'll be doing that for probably the next year or two. Um, but before it's released, we're only screening across the country and we want to come to your hometown, like you just said. Um, I think there's a screening, uh, happening or in the works for Kansas City. Um, but regardless, we want you to go to, uh, our website, letterpressfilm.com and click on screenings, um, from here, you can click the giant square that says request a screening. And you'll see we already have a couple booked right now. Um, and there are more that are um, being booked and should be added. <laughs> uh, so from there, you can just uh, fill out a small form and we'll get in touch with you. Um, but there is no uh, no limit to screening. Um, you know, Sometimes with filmmakers, uh, me, Andrew, Aaron, or Joe, you know, we'll come out. We'll do a QA And you'll see on that webpage that it says filmmaker Q&A. Um, and so we'll be there to kind of intro the film and, answer questions after, and just kind of, you know, explore the topic a little more in-depthly. So uh, letterpressfilm.com, I think it's slash screenings, but just click on the Request a Screening button uh, on the screenings page. So it's it's
0: letterpressfilm.com for everybody who's listening in iTunes, slash screening hyphen requests with an S on the end of requests. So it's in there. Go ahead. Oh, I don't know. Like,
1: and part of it too is like, you might be as an individual. Obviously, you probably don't have a theater access to a theater. Um, but we, once we get enough, we're trying to just find people to be connected with. Exactly. Um, like we, someone was here for AIGA. We've been trying to put together like a AIGA like national to sponsor something in every city where their chapters are, and hopefully the members could come at a discounted rate or something like that. Um, and we're still just like looking to be introduced to anybody who has some decision-making power to get us there.
2: Exactly. So whether you're a grassroots organizer, whether you are like a decider and you run a venue, um, whether you're that member, a board member, or whoever of an organization, I mean, um, we're really trying to work with everyone and just kind of bring the film and really spread the letter, press love as much as we can. So joe says you might know some people
0: right or there's, even there's a university people. right because kent yeah. is a professor and mm-hmm. i'm a professor Anne's a professor yep. so some of those things may those people those are great places to show this film as well mm-hmm. exactly
2: universities um companies you know their internal design groups and mm-hmm. you know some people are doing internal for their company only some people are doing uh, open to the public or only for our students in this program um, we think it really fits uh, really fits in well with a lot of graphic design programs out there. I mean, especially a lot of the callbacks, like we were talking about earlier, where you know all these terms, but where did they come from, uh, and how are you using them today? Um, so, yeah, we right. uh, we definitely want to bring the film to your hometown and screen.
0: Cool. All right. So I just want to share. So for everybody to be able to get in touch with you, if they you know have an idea for a film or they want to pitch something to you or just want to know what you're doing next, they should really go to bayonetmedia.com or is that, what should they do? How should they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, Bayonet's the best way to get involved, like in touch with Kevin and I um, uh, or anything to do with like commercial production or just if you want to have a documentary produced or a short film or something like that. Uh, We're totally open to that. We've had a lot of people come to us with ideas. Um, And then the film, everything about the film is over on, you know, letterpressfilm.com. Instagram is where we're like updating the most. That's where just our audience has been biggest.
0: And that's at letterpressfilm. And so just so that everybody knows. So bayonet, like the things you stab somebody with, right? So if you want to follow them and figure out... What they're doing next what their next documentary will be it might be about yo-yos remember if you're a big yo-yo person um but it's bayonetmedia.com
2: but bayonet in a friendly way we uh <laughs> yeah. we really embrace the color pink so you'll see our website right here but we just recently re- relaunched it and um it's got a lot of slow motion stuff and you know we're starting to get into original content as well so yeah check us out but also check out the film's website
0: Absolutely. And that again, letterpressfilm.com. So, thanks, guys, so much. I'm so glad that I got to talk to you both and have you on the show. And thank you guys for all coming. And next week, it's a rapid recharge. I'm going to be recapping some stuff from this past year, as well as um, talking about a new uh, side project I'm working on. So, Hopefully it'll be something you're interested, and in. hopefully you'll show up next week, normal time, two thirty Eastern, eleven a.m. Pacific on Wednesday. So the twenty seventh, twenty eighth. I'm really bad with math. So seven days from today.
1: I'm gonna ask about talking? the discount code that Kevin promised.
0: All
2: right, there so Print that lives on is the discount code, all uh, caps. Buy a uh, a poster. We have awesome T-shirts on our website that say print lives on, and they've got a picture of a press behind them. I think Diane, you got a poster behind you hanging on her wall. So we did our job somewhere. Um, but that poster is actually really cool. Um, it's five layers, um, letterpress print designed by Brad Vetter and Aaron Becklaw.
0: Cool.
1: I'm really enjoying the screen share thing. So I'm
0: just- It <laughs> is. It's cool, huh? It's very cool. So what's the 918? Is that the type high?
1: Yeah, that's type high. And one of the guys that we interviewed um, actually had made, Rick Von Holt, made this shirt. Um, and he he's wearing it in the film, .918. And he he had the type and he printed on a shirt but ruined all of his type in the process. So these are all screen printed. No type was hurt in the process of making <laughs> this. Um, and apparently it's also Tulsa's area code. We had somewhere <laughs> we wearing and people were like, oh, Tulsa. And we're like, no, <laughs> maybe...
0: Yeah. That Yeah. that's great that's hilarious but there is lots of great things and you can get the pack so there's yeah. a packet that you can mm-hmm. get which you get the DVD or the d- digital download which the digital download will be sent to us I guess in an email in, in October fall.
2: yeah it'll be around October probably um, we don't have a specific date on that but it will be this fall
0: <laughs> you do really like yeah. the um, I screen share I, I, is... we're
1: visual thinkers here we all love visual aid
0: It is, it is really nice. So, well, guys, thank you so much. And I just want to make sure everybody knows how they can get in touch with me. Also, you can always email me if you have a question or you just want to chat. You're lonely. Um, I will try to email you back that day. It's Diane at recharging And you can also find me on at, on Instagram or Twitter on at design recharge. So I hope that you guys will, um, Co- connect with me if I haven't already. Hey, there. I was like, "Why is he taking his, his on shirt on off? <laughs> this is a little awkward. We're still seeing you, Kevin." <laughs>
2: My point nine one eight shirt.
0: <laughs> I'm glad. I really. I was like, "Wait, we're not done. What are you doing, taking your clothes off?" I told you it was G-rated. <laughs> so the discount code is Print Lives On. And um, Oh, what happened was it was Kevin had it on all here. Let me do this. All panelists and oh it's, it's okay it's just, just you have to change that blue thing to say all panelists and attendees sorry there it is twice <laughs> yeah Oh, <laughs> uh, joe says it's design recharge after dark all right so <laughs> i'm gonna uh, we have a tornado warning watch Ooh. whatever's the uh-huh. not bad one Uh, We have that till 7 p.m. today. Um, So I'm going to let you guys go and try to brave this little uh, hurricane or tropical storm, Cindy. And I will see you guys next week. And thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you, Diane. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, and Brandon said good luck with your film. So thank you, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Everyone, take care. And everyone else,
1: thanks for tuning in.
2: Yes.
0: Thanks, guys. See you next week. Oops. I have to hit stop record. And I'm like...